What's up, y'all? I'm Dr. Craig Waleed, your host here on the Prison to Promise podcast, where I explore strategies formerly incarcerated people use to build a life of promise and avoid a return to prison. On this episode, I'm joined by Joseph Arvidson, who is the executive director of the Paragon Group, LLC. Their services include speaking engagements, training, and consulting on risk needs responsivity and resistance-based models. Joseph's training and consulting clientele have ranged from federal probation to local for-profit and non-profit agencies and international training and consulting. Additionally, he is the founder of the Criminologist Media Group serving as producer and host of the Criminologist podcast. You don't want to miss Joe's discussion about the process of exiting a life of crime. So tune in. Now let's go. Let's talk some desistance. All right, right on. And that's great. So thanks, Joe. Thanks so much. And how do I pronounce your name? Is it Arvidson? You nailed it. Arvidson. Yep. It's nice, nice. So today is just a little different here on the Prison of Promise podcast because I have Joe here who is a a podcaster. And um, the thing that really um, made me want to get Joe on here is to talk about recidivism. Um, and because Joe, if I'm not mistaken, uh, that's one of your areas of expertise, a uh, recidivism and and um, desistance, desistance. Yeah, I don't know why I was having <laughs> such a a brain freeze in that moment. No worries, uh, Craig. Yeah, it's a it's a newer term, so in that respect, it's sort of of symbolic. That yeah, and it's not just you; it's a lot of policymakers and practitioners who should really know about as you just alluded to this concept of what we refer to as desistance for crime from crime, rather, or essentially that process of exiting a life of crime. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I'm really curious to know what made you want to, or how did you come to become a, a specialist in recidivism and desistance and reduction of crime versus say a crime fighter or something like that? Great question, uh, Dr. Waleed. Great question. So my background is in probation and parole, community corrections. I have been a in a probation and parole capacity for about 34 years. Um, started my career down in the Florida Department of Corrections way back in 1988 uh, as a, like I said, a probation officer. I eventually got more interested in the training side of things and I was looking to shake up my career so I went down that that rabbit hole and learned everything I could about the principles of risk need and responsivity which if your listeners are in a corrections field they should know about R&R as we call it the risk need responsivity framework which is really the standard operating procedure for correctional agencies Craig really all over the world I I've trained alongside and trained folks on multiple continents. And so it, it is the common denominator, if you will. But to answer your question, I 
I'm always looking for process improvement. And I, I realize that as, as, as much efficacy as there is to that approach of risk, need, responsivity, mm-hmm. we're still not getting great results or great effect sizes. I mean, it's, it's the most impactful model that we can have, but I just felt we owe this so much more to our stakeholders, whether those are the clients or the community victims, even practitioners who are putting their blood, sweat, and tears into this. So we'll talk more about this, of course, Craig, but the short version is we were focusing as a vocation so much on those reasons why individuals, individuals such as yourself, for example, who I know you have lived experiences, We focused so much on why individuals enter into a life of crime with the assumption that, okay, if we address those variables that, uh, that tell us why folks entered into a life of crime, we will see reductions in recidivism, Mm -hmm. which we will. Mm -hmm. But when the desistance researchers started publishing their work, it was discovered, you know, we talked to people like Craig Walid, who have been crime-free now for many, many years. And we discovered that those factors as to why individuals exit a life of crime are not necessarily the same uh, as to why people exit a life of crime. So we really do need to take a full-court press, if you will, and examine both of those things to attain a much more holistic approach at at harm reduction and, and helping the clients we serve. Yeah. So let's dive into that then, you know, in an abbreviated version, if we could, you know, but, you know, what are the reasons that people exit crime? Let's start there because that's our focus, you know, desistance, Mm -hmm. recidivism reduction, I guess, for that matter. But why do people exit crime? Yeah. And I'll, I'll try to distill this down for your listeners, Craig, people who know me know I can get real nerdy and wonky and I don't want to turn people off by doing that. So I'm going to talk about this in, in general themes. And there's currently, and I need to give credit where credit uh, is due. This comes from a lot of the work of Dr. Fergus McNeil, who's over in Scotland, who is really a, a game changer when it comes to desistance research. And there's currently about four different theories to answer your question as to why people exit crime. The first theory is is simply that of what they call maturation, or I'm sure you've heard of this notion of aging out. Yeah. Eventually everybody, even the high-risk clientele with a few notable exceptions, but most individuals will essentially eventually age out of crime. If we do nothing as professionals, most justice-involved individuals will desist. And when I get pushback on this from practitioners, Craig, um, particularly those who work in a in a custodial setting, I'll challenge them and I'll say, well, guys, if you don't believe me, because not surprisingly, we tend to get a little cynical in corrections, mm-hmm. go look at go look at the pods you work in. Go look at the wings. You know, how many, how many 50 and 60 year old inmates are you are you housing right now? Or if you're in a community setting, how many 50 and 60 year olds are you supervising? I mean, it's, it's anecdotal, but it's, it's true. People will eventually age out of crime if we do nothing. Now the trick with the assistance theory is, okay, what can we do as professionals to accelerate that, that finish line, if you will. 
There's and if a, you would, real quick, for our for our listeners, define what desistance is, because though you and I know, maybe some folks listening don't know. Yeah, uh, thank you. I got a little ahead of my skis there. Again, when we talk about desistance, it's really desisting from crime, but that actually opens up a lot of other questions as to how we're really defining that. So, let me take these two concepts, and I'll I'll come I'll circle back to where I was going with maturation theory, and just give some broad definitions. When we talk about um, primary desistance, that is defined as behavior. Mm-hmm. So recidivism, basically, which has been the um, traditional metric that we use in corrections and criminal justice, are people reoffending? Are they reoffending within a year or within other other time frame? And most folks, I think, are familiar with that term, recidivism rates or reoffending rates. So the first definition... Craig of recidivism is simply behavioral. Are they still recidivating? But what I like about recidivism, recidiv- um, desistance rather, is it goes deeper than that. Mm-hmm. When we talk about secondary uh, desistance, we're talking about identity. You can have somebody not committing crimes anymore because they might just be too old or or, or incapacitated or for some other reasons are unable to commit crimes but they still root for the bad guy in the theater. They still have negative thoughts towards the system and towards law enforcement and the courts. They, they're still that blankety blank, if you know what, I, what I'm saying. Yeah. So they, they still have that identity. So when we talk about people who have attained secondary desistance, their identity has shifted from one of shot caller, hustler, pimp, gangster, to one of father, husband, valued employee, mm-hmm. citizen, community yeah. member. And you can see the subtle difference there between, well, Craig's not offending. Craig hasn't been arrested in a year versus Craig sees someone totally different now when he looks in the mirror than he did at the peak of his offending. That's what we mean by secondary desistance. You've actually changed your identity. And when I train or 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 teach on this, Craig, to get this point across to the to the audience about identity transformation. I'll challenge them and say, what was your identity, for example, your senior year in high school or your freshman year in college? Mm-hmm. Or juxtapose your identity when you were single versus when you became a parent. Mm-hmm. And when people see themselves as a parent, then it's easy to see, well, this kind of relates to behavior too. So If you really want to get up more primary desistance, work on that identity. And then the third level of how we define desistance, tertiary desistance is really all about relationships. And essentially, have you been accepted back into the community? Mm -hmm. So again, if we want to recap, we can have primary desistance. Someone's not committing crimes. Right. Then we can have secondary desistance where not only are they not behaving criminally, but they identify differently. They see themselves as a, diff- as a different individual. But when we attain tertiary desistance, it's you're now welcome back into society as a pro-social member of society. We're not going to shun you via housing restrictions or employment restrictions or you know, even view you as an other, if we will. You've, you've been accepted back into the fold. And that's tertiary desistance. So to answer your question, that's what drew me to it was 
Our current operating system, at least here in the United States, is at best, we're going for that first level. We're going for behavioral. Can mm-hmm. we just get Craig or whomever not to reoffend? Mm-hmm. But desistance is more than just not reoffending. It is really that true reintegration. Yeah. And, you know, just hearing you say that makes me think about some uh, approaches to medicine, which is sometimes it's just um, superficial. You know, they don't want to root out the cause, you know, so for whatever reason, they'll just, you know, give you medication, but never fix the the issue. But here we're talking about going to the root of the person, not just their behavior, but who they think they are, who they want to be, who they are becoming, and then all of those supports that they have to help shore them up, so to speak. Yeah, it's really appealing to me for all the reasons that you just that you just are quick articulated um craig and i think for the practitioner it's it's more rewarding as well because you're seeing much more of that transformation if you will Mm. beyond somebody just not showing up monday morning on the arrest log from the weekend or 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 whatever Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you're you're literally assisting and changing that, that that who that person is at their core and so when we think about people changing, uh, do you think people are having a greater frequency of change um, later in life or across the spectrum of ages? Boy, that's a great question. Um, I do know, and we were talking about this earlier when I was talking about one theory of desistance simply says, again, maturation or that they'll they'll age out. And a lot of that does look at brain development. I think what you're getting at is, you know, where they're at in the change process. Mm -hmm. Uh, Most individuals, I mean, everybody, not everybody, but a lot of folks, for example, do dabble in delinquency. It's what they refer to as um, this sort of age-limited trajectory of crime, Mm -hmm. commonly known as juvenile delinquency. You know, we see that spike at 15, 16 of delinquent behavior. Mm -hmm. And then most folks, because they have things in place that justice involved individuals don't have in place. Yeah. A good support system, for example, things of that nature. Um, then they, they sort of peak out at 15, 16 real quick with this delinquency, but then you get the more life course persistent folks who get into more serious criminal trajectories. Mm-hmm. But as I was saying, Craig, even those peak out in the late twenties, which I think even, I don't think we do a good enough job in corrections of, public relations. I don't even think most uh, practitioners know that much less members of the, of the community, um, how stark that, that drop-off is. We used to joke around that a, uh, a, a, a crime fighter's best friend was a 30th birthday party because most people will age out of crime at the age of 30. Yeah. 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 Now that's tied to a lot of other things. And if we get to these other models of desistance, that aging is tied to a lot, to a lot of other things, such as social bonds and rewarding employment and that kind of thing. But uh, it's it, it all needs to be considered. Yeah. Yeah. But so it, just based on what we're talking about thus far, it makes me think crime is a young person's game. Most definitely. Yeah. Most definitely. And another issue we have too, and I sort of alluded to this before when I said most folks age out, we, we tend to, maybe it's just human nature, but we tend to look at the outliers and then mm-hmm. sadly form opinions based on that or even policy based on that yeah, yeah. Uh, you they know the old the, the, the yeah the older the older um 
the older fender who again just draws the attention but again that's not the norm that's right. really not the norm mm -hmm. yeah 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 i think that's just in general you see older people older animals we all just kind of slow down mm -hmm. you know and yeah, we're not making those rash decisions anymore right but then you get a uh I don't know if you remember who Whitey Bulger is. Yeah. He was the FBI's most wanted, and he was picked up after how many years on the on the run was it, Craig, in San Diego? Quite a long but, time, no. but I tell folks, you know, Whitey Bulger is the exception to the rule. Most people aren't, you know, either offending or on the run or still having that criminal identity into their 70s and 80s. Right, right. Uh, yeah. But we yeah. get these high-profile cases that people think that's the norm. Mm -hmm. And it's and it's and I'm here to tell you it's not. Right, right, right. I think people who've been incarcerated or who are currently incarcerated are, are hyper villainized, you know, where most of the folks are not these super villains, these super yeah. criminals. Yeah. yeah. But what what are some of the um, other models, you know, I, I don't know if we'll have time to really dig into all of them, but what are some of those other models that you talked about? So, yeah, again, when I talked about um, those various theories of desistance, one was just let folks age, leave them alone and they'll age out. The other one really looks at social bonds. Mm -hmm. Now, there's a lot of connections with this to, to the aforementioned risk-need-responsivity model, which does put a lot of weight on, on one's companions because it gets into or relies rather on a lot of social learning theory and model behavior. But as far as the desistance folks go, they realize that it's, it's not just having people in your life who are going to model pro-social behavior, but it, it's, it's about the ties you have to those people. And it's really about surrounding yourself with people that will provide what we call social capital or giving you opportunities mm -hmm. and, and to, to, to exit a life of crime. So again, in the old, or I shouldn't say the old, but in the, in the risk need responsivity model, when we, we, we might do an assessment and say, well, you've been assessed as having a lot of negative peers and we need to address that. Well, a lot of folks might just sort of play whack-a-mole and say, these are the your gangster friends you can't hang out with anymore, but they don't replace it with anything. Right. Or if they or them. if they do replace it with somebody, let's say we do another risk assessment within a year and we say, oh, you're scoring much better now in the area of companions because You've surrounded yourself with people who might not have criminal records, might not be involved in the criminal justice system. So technically they would be assessed or scored as positive. But what social capital is about is, again, surrounding that individual with, with folks who are going to afford them off ramps out of criminality, whether mm -hmm. that's in, in, in employment or if they're struggling with substance abuse. Um, and you could... Each of us, all of us, your listeners could look at our own social capital and say, are these folks helping me get closer to my hopes and dreams or are they reflective of barriers to those hopes and dreams? Mm -hmm. So so people with rich social capital find themselves desisting from crime. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you think of somebody who is a, in the language we use at least, a high risk client mm -hmm. and who, and the, their social capital, they don't. They don't have anybody who, again, could um, give them those, those assets to to steer themselves out of a, a life of criminality. Mm -hmm. so, so that's a big one. Yeah. Social social capital, social bonds, mm -hmm. surrounding yourself with social people. Almost think, I know you and I, Craig, are big on LinkedIn, but if you think of people who have 
vast amounts of LinkedIn connections. They have yeah. a lot of social capital. Yeah. It doesn't mean they have a lot of friends or a lot of people who have been locked up. It's like, no, you have a lot of people that can afford you opportunities for growth. Mm -hmm. And that's what, and that's that other, another theory of desistance is you need to surround yourselves with those types of people. Yeah. People that can help you mm -hmm. blossom or lead you into those opportunities for growth. Yeah. yeah. I remember uh, when I got out of prison, a friend of mine says to me, you have to learn how to borrow other people's integrity. And in a sense, that was, you know, building social capital. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, that, that's very important. Look at, I mean, we could do this, Craig. Look at your own social capital and you could juxtapose what it was like when you were either, you know, either offending or, where you're, or when you were just released mm -hmm. versus what it is now. Yeah, yeah. And, and how much of that success, of your success or even, you know, of your change process, could you attribute to what we are now defining as your social capital, your relationships with people like me, people on LinkedIn who have opened up other training, consulting opportunities for you. That was Absolutely. all the result of you augmenting your social capital. Yeah, yeah. And I think for people who are listening, people who might be trying to transition from offending to living a straight-laced life, I think a big piece is also being unafraid to allow yourself to be vulnerable, you know? I think that's important. That's not probably one of these criminogenic factors, you know, but I think it's something that people need to be willing to do. Oh, 100%. Yeah. I mean, change, any type of change is difficult. Yeah. That's why people, you know, can see their doctor and the doctor might say, if you don't quit smoking, you'll die of cancer. Or if you don't lose weight, you're going to lose a limb due to obesity. And why wouldn't those people do that? Or if you don't stop drinking, you're going to have destroyed relationships and job yeah. loss, but they keep drinking. Yeah. It's because change is hard. It's as it simple is. as that. We're creatures of habit. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so there's these neural pathways that get burned into our cognitive space, into our brain, and it's yeah. hard to undo them. So hard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah I'm glad you brought up the neural pathways. I've been dabbling a little bit in neurocriminology and learning about the the brain science, if you will. But those pathways, you're right. The more I just like to use analogies, and I think of you know a field, a shortcut with with a pathway and that pathway might've been to addiction or criminality, or it might've been to making your bed every morning, but yeah. those familiar pathways are the ones that we're more comfortable with. And it's hard to plow, to plow those new pathways, which in this Absolutely. sense, we're talking about again, different cognitions. But yeah. Change is hard. Mm -hmm. It makes me hard. think about even more literal when we think about shortcuts. I remember as a kid, there being shortcuts through someone's backyard or whatever, and then they put up a fence, you know, and then so people try to jump the fence or tear the fence down because they don't want to change, you know. But eventually, once the barrier stands, the pathway grows and then, you know, you forget that that pathway was ever there. Sort of like our neural pathways. Yeah. Through, I think, intentionality, we can build new and different neural pathways and create roadblocks so that we can find our way but it takes a lot of work yeah and i would contend as a lot of it like we've been talking about comes with with age it comes with who you surround yourself with and it comes with and this is the third theory of desistance if you don't mind it's, it's what is referred to as 
is one's narrative identity or that identity transformation. And I alluded to this before, but you could use yourself, Craig, or I could use myself in any situation. Identity is, and this is what I like about these theories is they're all kind of linked. Identity is linked to social capital, who you associate with, um, really informs your identity rather. Absolutely. And even your maturity, you know, involves your identity. I've got a another connection. He's been on my show a few times, Ed Flanagan over in England. And one of um, his expressions, having spent about 50, I think, of his 65 years on earth, you wow. know, he's had about a 50-year criminal career before he finally um, desisted and got sober. But mm-hmm. his, his expression that I love to share is, you show me your friends, I'll show you your future. Absolutely. The old time has been saying that a long time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and again, it, it, it ties to this identity. Yeah. Um, it's if you want to change someone's, if you want someone to desist, this other theory says is work on that identity Yeah. because identity drives behavior. And mm-hmm. um, there's a gentleman by the name of Shad Maruna, who's actually an American, but he's teaching over in Northern Ireland now. Um, he really leans into this notion of, of identity transformation and how identity is linked to behaviors. And he does a great job of looking at, hey, it's not just us in desistance theory that think this. He points out a lot of other entities tap into this notion of if we can just alter someone's identity, we can get them to behave in a certain way, whether it's um, fraternities who say, you know, you've got to have a fraternity name and you've got to pledge and you've got to do all this. And then that's why we get you to do all these silly things to fraternity that most people would say, why would you do that? Or it's entities like. I'm also thinking about advertisement. Yeah. You know, if Mm -hmm. that doesn't tap into people's identity, you know, when you get this product or if you purchase this product, you're being smart, you're being attractive, you're being, you know, whatever. Right. That, that the brand you wear, the label you wear, whatever, right? Then you're one of the pretty people or whatever, yeah. yeah. Um, what so this I? speaks, but yeah, the, the, I'm not sure where you're going, but what I'm thinking about is just how this really speaks to the seat of all success that people can find. And that is seated within one's thinking, one's perception of themselves and how they show up in the world. Yeah, and that's what I love about about this topic, Craig, is yes, we're talking about it within a criminal justice criminology setting. But to your point, these are these are commonly held, you know, beliefs. A lot of this you see in other things, whether it's as you're referring to, sort of this idea of self-actualization, believing your dreams, you know, it's all true. We just have never really applied it to mm-hmm. to reintegration before. Yeah. And you know, and I think in in, in part maybe we haven't applied this to reintegration because of all of the other barriers that a large percentage of people returning to the community are facing that all of the energy or effort has been in trying to remove or reduce the barriers. Yeah. And that's a big part of it too. There are so many other sort of systemic barriers, as you said, that make this work difficult (laughs) uh, for those trying to do it, whether they're, statutory legislative mm-hmm. um or even um you know anchored in in bias and discrimination yeah it's, it's, and we it's, know that that's all there yeah all of that yeah legislation policy bias and discrimination even yeah. within the criminal justice system 
I mean, sadly, I could, I could train up and we could get a really good cadre of probation and parole officers. But if we're not on the same page as judges, prosecutors, police officers, mm -hmm. uh, we're sort of the, the lone voice in the wilderness. Yeah. Yeah. And they're all separate entities, you know, mm -hmm. in a sense, all separate entities serving the, the one king, so to speak, you know. Yeah. Yeah. But they're all on different pages. Yeah. Yeah. So that's makes it challenging. Makes it challenging. Yeah. 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 So a couple other questions. And one is how can someone increase or help someone increase uh, their likelihood to desist criminal behavior? Boy, what a great question. Um, I like to keep things basic. And at the, yeah. I think sometimes we talk so much and, in in wonky and, and abstract terms but you're right just like anyone who's maybe not even a player in the system for example mm -hmm. uh one of the things and i know you you've been on my my podcast craig but one of my missions in life is to really try to tear down the the bias and the misconception that we have about justice involved individuals and in reintegration so to answer your question I think it just starts with just viewing someone for not something they did mm. on the worst day of their life, mm -hmm. but looking at them for for who they can become. Mm. So to answer your question, stop looking in the rearview mirror. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And start and looking for the potential and good in people rather than just looking in the rearview mirror and waiting for them to repeat that that bad behavior and 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 stop labeling and looking at them through that lens mm, yeah and you know i think it's I, I think that's all so great and one of the things i'm also thinking about is how challenging it is to not to perceive or misperceive people through these um lenses that don't shine favorable light on people you know some of the terms we use especially when we talk about incarcerated people you know is the inmate, the prisoner, the convict, you know? And so, and we're just so used to doing it. We, we remove the person's yeah. sense of language, you know? Yeah. We, again, I could do an entire podcast just on the labeling theory, but you're right. It is alive and well uh, in corrections, even in official speak. Mm -hmm. um, we still throw out terms, like you said, of offender, inmate, prisoner, mm -hmm. without realizing the damning effects that has on somebody um i've stolen this from other trainers and assistants but you know only in corrections do we take like i said something that that snapshot of what someone did on the worst day of their life mm -hmm. and turn that into an adverb and then just throw that adverb around for the next five years of supervision or the next 10 years of a sentence mm -hmm. um okay. I mean, if I got up out of this chair in the middle of this interview and I and I tripped getting out of this chair, in the moment you could label me as a tripper, <laughs> one who trips, but you wouldn't call me that for the next five years. Right. Because when we do this incident in a moment in time. And when we do this on a professional level, again, I don't really think we understand the magnitude of what that does in the person who we're trying to instill a change in. I tell a story sometimes when I train about imagine if you, you know, you go to your dentist every year, every six months, whatever your, your dental plan can afford you. And whenever the, the hygienist comes out to the waiting room to greet you, to come on in, oh, 
hi, Mr. Walid. Oh, my 10 o'clock a.m. non-flosser is here. <laughs> right. Or like, oh, my, my, hang on a second, Nancy. I'm waiting for my 11 o'clock never brushes to get here. Or, you know, if your doctor always viewed you through the lens of who knows what, obesity or, or, or excess sugar or, or whatever it is, but in the same breath, get frustrated at you for not addressing that change. Right. The change that you've been labeling me the last however many times with. Yeah. And again, I would challenge practitioners um, to stop looking beyond, you know, they read that 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 criminal complaint mm-hmm. or that, you know, that narrative of, you know, on such and such a date, such and such a car was stolen, blah, blah, blah. Okay, that's my 1030 appointments here. Right. Instead of Mr. Jones is here. And what are where does Mr. Jones want to be in five years when he's crime free? Absolutely. What are your what are your hopes and dreams, Mr. Jones? And why don't I just start referring to you as future good father, future so- sober neighbor, future small business owner, you know, whatever. Because we all want the same things, you know, and that's security and safety. Mm-hmm. You know? and yeah. that, that's, you know, food, housing, clothing, all that security and safety. Yeah. You know? Yeah, that's, that's true. And that really gets into a, another sort of a, the kissing cousin, if you will, of, of desistance theory, known as the good lives model, but it's what you just said, Craig. We all have these certain things in life that we want. Success in in work, success in play, healthy relationships. But some folks just struggle because they don't have the social skills to attain those things in a pro-social manner. So it their their quest to attain those things comes out sideways mm. and results in criminality. Mm. But it's really all about, I just wanted these good things in life, the satisfaction and these other sort of assets in life. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. That makes sense, too. And, you know, sometimes I think also what may play a part in that is perhaps uh, just coming from, I guess what you pretty much alluded to is coming from a background of depravity, you know, so that could be, you know, physical depravity of, you know, housing, food, clothes, but also emotional, psychological depravity where the people who are responsible for raising you don't have the the faculties or the tools to help you become a healthy individual. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, I think, and, and this is also an answer to your earlier question about just sort of what can the average person do? Mm-hmm. Um, I'd like to learn from other areas, other jurisdictions. I've been blessed to be involved in some overseas training as of late. But one thing I picked up from my European colleagues, when they train over there, they put much more emphasis on perspective taking from the practitioner, you know, to the client to understand their, their plight, if you will, rather Mm -hmm. than just, you know, your number with a risk score. These are the areas that your risk assessment says you're risky in. It's just, Craig, what was it like growing up in your house? Mm-hmm. Craig, tell me about your experiences in school and yeah. that simple act of perspective taking. Mm-hmm. I know when we train on, I, I train in what we refer to as motivational interviewing and a big piece of that is, and of a lot of the other things we do is 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 really anchored in empathy. Yeah, uh, But I've noticed at times at least, <laughs> some folks who get into corrections and get into criminal justice system, that empathy 
sort of comes off as a little bit too touchy feely. So I I've reframed that learning from the my European friends of like, okay, just let's just try perspective taking. Mm. And then it's like, oh, okay, now I can relate to that person a lot more. That that's an easier sell if I if I Words sell matter. it like, if I sell it like that. Yeah. yeah. And it's the same thing. And mm-hmm. perspective taking. Yeah. yeah. Words matter. Titles matter. Labels matter. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the day, I think it's really important to do this work until we don't have a job, you know. But I Good think enough. that's never going to be because there's always going to be haves and have-nots, you know. So the have-nots are going to always want something or they're not going to be treated right. But desistance, I, I, that's the, the closing theme, the opening theme. And I really appreciate you just shedding some of your professional light on what desistance is. Um, if folks wanted to follow up with you or listen to your podcast or anything, um, how can they find you? Thank you. The name of the podcast is The Criminologist. It's available on all of your major podcast platforms. You could visit my website, theparagongroupllc.com. And if you get into the website, you'll see a tab entitled podcast. So all of my back episodes, including my one with Dr. Craig Walid, can be found off the Paragon Group LLC website. Or you can reach out to us at the Paragon Group at Gmail. Or I'm sorry, the Criminologist Podcast at gmail.com. If you want to email us for questions or a possible guest appearance, we're always looking for other enlightened individuals to share their experiences. And as I said earlier, tear down these biases and prejudices that get in the way of folks like you and I doing good work, Craig. Right on, right on, Joe. And with that, I'm going to call it a wrap. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, my friend. Until next time. Yes, peace. What's up, y'all? Thanks for listening to the Prison to Promise podcast. If you or someone you know would like to share your story, please contact me by email at drcraigwaleed at gmail.com, on LinkedIn and Instagram at drcraigwaleed, and on Twitter at Craig Waleed. I hope to hear from you. Be well. Peace.